Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just lift you up. You are great. We thank you for the opportunity we have to meet here. We thank you that you brought us here safely, and we thank you that we get to dig into your word together today, Lord. We just invite the Holy Spirit upon us right now. We ask that the Holy Spirit work in power and that your word would ring true in the hearts and lives of everybody here, Lord. We pray for anybody who does not know you, they would come to know you today, Lord. We just lift you up, and we thank you. In your son's name, amen. Second Samuel, chapter number 12, is where we're going to be spending the majority of our day today. Second Samuel, chapter number 12. If I run three minutes late, I'm going to blame it on Chris for the audible he called. Thanks for being a fall guy for me today, buddy. Appreciate that. Um, while you guys turn there, and that's going to be page number 245 in the black Bibles in front of you. If there's not enough Bibles in front of you, tap the person in front of you, behind you, get yourself a Bible. We're happy to hand them out, and there are plenty for everybody. It's page 245, 2 Samuel chapter number 12. We're going to start in verse number 13. But before we get there, I just want to take a moment to kind of let you guys know how long it takes to actually prepare a sermon on a weekly basis. Man, you guys are, the first, the first crowd started laughing there, so <laughs> cue. No, I'm kidding. Um, you know, I, I, for the last six weeks or so, I was preparing this, and I was blessed to actually see the work that our pastor puts into this on a weekly basis, and I just want to personally thank Pastor Bill for the time, effort, and energy he puts into bringing us the word on a weekly basis. He's consistent with it. Yeah, that's right. It does deserve a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Bill. He already knows what's coming next. He's already cringing because he knows there's something coming at him right now. Um, I got a bone to pick with you, though. Actually, two this time. First, you didn't warn me about the major drop-off in energy after service number one. All right? (laughs) There's no warning on that. Luckily, I brought an energy drink. I'm fired up. I'm ready to go. We should have a good time here. But second, you see, you gave me all of the structure as far as how I should spend my time to get this ready. You told me everything I should be doing, and you checked everything off for me and said, hey, you should be able to do this in this amount of time and blah, 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 blah. You left one thing out, though. And one thing only, and it really irritates me because I can't see how I'm ever going to get rid of this. I can't see how working through this repeatedly is ever going to get more efficient for me as the rest of it did. Because you see, I spent an hour and 20 minutes doing this. It was an hour and 10 minutes yesterday and 10 minutes this morning. And that hour and 10 minutes yesterday was at a barber shop and 10 minutes in front of my mirror this morning doing my hair. So (laughs) we love you, Pastor Bill. Second Samuel chapter number 12, we're beginning in verse number 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. 
How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food? He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. 2 Samuel chapter 12 is the latter half of a very dark story in David's life. And it's filled with a lot of brokenness, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, and a lot of sin. And we're going to go through that. But you see, when this passage of scripture is taught, it's typically ended right here. And here at Hope Bible, we've been going through a portion uh, or a, a biblical study, a study that is, is how we misuse the Bible or how we misrepresent the Bible or how we don't interpret the full meaning of a portion of Scripture. And you see, when you cut the portion of Scripture off right here, I believe you miss the bigger picture of what's going on. While I was putting this together, I, had, I, I couldn't really come up with a sermon title, and so I started Googling what titles were out there, and it only proved the point that the big picture is not evident in most cases. So go through those real quick. The first sermon title that I was, that I came across was getting right when you've done wrong. And surely David has done wrong. And we will go through that. And definitely David should get right, but we're missing something bigger. I just, I wasn't, I was like, that's not it. That's, that's not the right, that's not the right uh, title. The next one is death of a child. In this portion of scripture is known to be used at funerals for young children. It's known to be used to comfort a grieving parent's from the death of a baby, either antepartum or postpartum, and we believe that truth, we hold to that truth, that babies that do not live go to heaven. We believe that God loves them well enough to bring them to heaven, but that's a small truth that we put into the portion of scripture, and we can get it out. We're just not getting the big picture. We also see God may say no, and God definitely says no to some of our prayers, and I'm sure we've all experienced that here. We also see David's confession and God's judgment. Now, this one's close. And in fact, if we only read these verses, if we only read this portion, I would say that David's confession and God's judgment is spot on. The thing is, is we stopped two verses shy of where we should have read. We stopped two verses shy from getting a bigger picture. So we're going to read the next two verses here up on the screen. It says, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've read 2 Samuel and stopped where he just recently stopped. I can also tell you that it took me until just this past year to actually piece together the fact that Solomon's birth is directly following David's forgiveness. You see, Solomon's birth is a picture of restoration with God. 
And it's because of that that I'm going to name this title, the journey, or name the sermon, The Journey to Restoration. Now, the statement journey insinuates that we're about to go on a path. We're about to go on a ride. We're going to jump on a plane. We're going to get in a car. We're going to uh, get in a train, or we're going, to, we're going to go somewhere. And to go somewhere, we need a starting point, right? And it's important to notice that restoration with God always starts here. Restoration with God always starts at this first point I'm about to make. And here's the thing. It's a dark place. It's a dark, cruel, wretched place that restoration with God starts. And without, restora- without this, there would be no need for restoration with God because our point number one is sin, our brokenness exposed. Now, if sin is where the journey begins, then where did it begin for David? You see, we started reading in Scripture here where David asks for forgiveness. We're already past the sin, right? Can I adjust this? I should probably adjust this, huh? I keep hearing it hit my cheek. Is that better? Can you guys still pick me up? All right. Back to the, back to the story here. So David, David lived a life of sin leading up to this, and we're going to dive into this. And if we don't go back to this and we don't look into what's actually going on, we can't figure out the need for restoration. This birth of Solomon means nothing more to us than just another birth because we're not getting the whole picture. Okay, so we have to go backwards in time. We have to dig, out, dig up what's happening here, and we have to get the big picture, which is what we need to do when we're reading our Bibles. And we're going to do that. We're going to look at the chapter before, and if you're reading in the Bibles that are uh, in front of you, and it's just going to be on the page to the left, and we're going to read chapter number 11 to figure out where our first stop is in David's journey. Looking at verse number 1, it says... In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, on the first stop to this restoration of sin, we see or this restoration that is caused by sin, we see that temptation can come in times of comfort. Temptation can come in times of comfort. You see, you see what, what David was doing here is he was hanging out at his house. And he was hanging out at his house when he should have been on the battlefield. And people may want to argue that. I mean, it, right here it says, you know, Joab was ravaging the Ammonites. So what did they need David for, Right? Oh, my guys have got it under control, but the reality is this. David should have been on the battlefield. It says it right here in the text. And if we look back in Deuteronomy and see in Deuteronomy chapter number 23, God said that the Ammonites were people that weren't allowed in the assembly of God and would never experience peace with Israel, thus insinuating forever a conflict between them and Israel. And if David's going to miss a battle, that's probably not the one he should be missing. No, David was on his couch watching Netflix and eating bugles. <laughs> he stood up and got up onto the roof and saw a woman bathing. And he enters into temptation during a time of comfort. Now, when we enter into temptation, when we see the temptation, we're faced with three choices. We can either embrace the temptation and enter into sin. 
We can flee temptation or we can linger in it. I think that's what we see David do right here in verse number three. It says, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Read here that David toes the line. David toes the line, and in a moment when he should have turned around and walked away, and walked away from his temptation, he got closer to it and said, I want to know more before I make a decision on what I'm going to do. How many times do we do that in our Christian walk? How many times do we want to get more information before we flee temptation? You know, when I was thinking through this, I thought through... uh, a trip that my family and I went on a couple months back, and it was to the Grand Canyon. And the Grand Canyon is expansive. You can't see any of it, you can't see all of it from any one given spot. And because of that, when you go to the Grand Canyon, it sucks you in, it entices you. You want to get closer to it, you want to get a different angle. But yet we, we read in the news and we see on TV every year that people walk closer and closer to that line, and there are no barriers there. I can say that because I'm a father of five kids. If you're in the first service, you caught that. But people walk closer and closer and closer and closer to the Grand Canyon line until they fall. You see, sin is the same way. If you linger in temptation and keep towing that line, you will eventually fall. We see that in verse number four. Going into our second point, failure to flee temptation can result in a fall. If we look down at verse number four, we see this. Then David said to Uriah, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm I'm all screwed up now, aren't I? Verse number four, no, I'm right. I'm right, you guys are patient with me. Then David said to Uriah, I'm sorry, yeah, no, I am wrong. So, here it is, number four, bear with me. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, then she returned to her house. I'm going to have to paraphrase the next 15 or so verses because we just don't have time to go through it. This is the beginning of David's fall. And while most people would think that adultery is enough to to insinuate there's a full fall, at this point... He's only, he's only one step down the ledge. He's got a long ways to go, and you'll, you'll understand that here in a second. See, the king of Israel committed adultery. He impregnated a woman that was not his wife, but the wife of someone else, a soldier that was on the field fighting the battle that he should have been fighting, and so he's faced with a choice, what to do. And David says, I'm going to cover this up, and i got just the plan to do it. He sends message to Joab, the commander, and he says, hey, send Uriah the Hittite home. Uriah the Hittite gets home, and David says, hey, Joab, uh, or Uriah, you know, how's Joab doing? How's the battle going? Good? Good? All right, awesome. Go home. Thinking that just like any other normal guy would do after being in a journey and away from his wife, thinking that certain things would take place that evening so he could cover up his sin. But Uriah, in his dignity said, I'm a soldier, and I need to be with my people. I'm not going to have comfort tonight. And he slept on the king's doorstep. And when David asked him, he explained, David, 
My guys are out on the battlefield. That's where I need to be insinuating, hey, are you done with me? I need to go. Giving David a right hook, right? I mean, David's sitting here thinking, man, I, you know, I should have been there too. If I'd have been here, I wouldn't have been in this mess. David then takes the next step to try to cover it up and gets Uriah drunk, thinking that that will work. That doesn't work. So he puts together a list of commands that he sends to Joab, and he says to Joab, put Uriah the Hittite at the forefront of the battle in the hottest part of the battle, and when the heat gets cranked up, pull the guys back and let Uriah die. And if you think that's not bad enough, he seals it up in an envelope, I presume, hands it to Uriah the Hittite to take to Joab. He hands the man his own death sentence. Uriah is killed in battle and sin is committed. Adultery, theft, cover-up, lies, murder. David is so far down this pit that we almost don't know where he's going to go, where it ends. I mean, is it over yet? Is there more to it? Right now, we understand the first stop in the journey of sin in David's life, and the next stop in our journey is repentance, acknowledging our sin with a remorseful heart. Now, it took David a little over a year to get here. From what we can kind of piece together, the baby's born, which means there's nine months of a gestation period, right? Baby's born, baby's alive. There's time here that David's saying, I got away with this. It's over. He has now taken Bathsheba as his wife. No harm, no foul. Well, obviously there's a lot of harm, but nobody knows about it, right? I mean, I've gotten away with it. Then God sends Nathan, the prophet, to go confront David. We see here that our first point underneath repentance is that a sensitivity to the spirit should lead to a timely repentance. We see that Nathan is sent to David from God, and Nathan goes to David and confronts him in his sin. And David understands his sensitivity and actually still has the sensitivity. So we go back to chapter number 12, and we look at verse number 13. It says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David is confronted by Nathan, and his response is very clear. I have sinned. But you see, if that's all we do, if all we do is read this one piece of scripture and we roll through it, how do we know what he's really thinking? Because point number two is that true repentance actually comes from a heart that is broken. Can we actually tell that David's heart is broken by this in this portion of scripture? Can we actually tell that when he says, I have sinned against the Lord, that his heart is actually broken? We have no idea how he said it. He could have been like, yeah, you know what? Nathan, I sinned, okay? I sinned against the Lord. Yeah, you know what, Nathan? I'm sorry, I sinned. I get it. I sinned. I sinned against the Lord. You see, and, and, and the problem with the way that we sometimes read our scriptures and read our Bible and study it is that we don't use the cross-referencing to find out what else is going on. And if we do that, we'll be directed to Psalm number 51. And you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. That's page number 443 in the black Bibles that you have. And if we see that, if we go to Psalm 51, we see David's true heart. While you're turning there, this psalm was written by David after he was confronted by Nathan and shows exactly how broken David was. 
So we're going to look at Psalm number 51. We'll read verses 1 through 17. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I think it's clear here that we see true repentance. We see a heart that's broken by what he's done. And while I was studying repentance, I came across this, uh, this quote by Thomas Brooks. It says, true repentance includes sorrow for sin and contrition of heart. It breaks the heart with sighs and sobs and groans. Is that your heart? Is your heart groaning under the weight of your sin? Are you looking for a way out from the weight that is just pushing down on you? Is that your heart? On the journey to restoration, we've left sin. We visited repentance. And our next stop is an immediate escort. Our next stop is an immediate escort to forgiveness, which is a divine command modeled by God. You see, when we ask Almighty God for forgiveness, when we get on our knees, when we repent and let him know that we are wrong, the next step is immediate. The next place is immediate. There's no more waiting. We enter into his forgiveness. The trip from sin to repentance takes time sometimes. And when it does, it's a bumpy ride, folks. I encourage you to read into that about David's life, and you'll see that in other areas. It's a bumpy ride when you take some time to get into repentance. But the beauty of it is this. When we respond with repentance, we immediately receive forgiveness. I'm going to go back to 2 Samuel chapter number 12, and we're going to read the latter part of verse number 13. Again, that's page 245. And what we're going to read is our first point here that God's forgiveness is immediate, it's complete, and it's unilateral. So 2 Samuel, chapter number 12, we're going back to verse number 13. It says, And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. 
See, God's forgiveness is immediate. We see that right away. It's immediate, it's complete, and it's unilateral. Now, when I say it's unilateral, we need to understand what that is. A unilateral agreement is something that's offered to you. You have to do nothing to receive. You have to do nothing to keep. All you have to do is claim. Okay? And God's forgiveness is a unilateral agreement. It's his agreement to you and means nothing about what you think about it once you've received it. And the beauty of that is you can't ruin it. You can't ruin God's forgiveness. You just have to claim it. Although we have been forgiven, and it's, it is still important to note that forgiveness does not release us from our consequences. Let's look at verse number 14 in the text. It says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And he said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. David sinned, and sin had consequences. David has been forgiven by God, but consequences still ensue. And we see that in our own lives and in our own relationships That whenever we sin against other people, there are sometimes consequences to our sin that don't go away. And it doesn't mean that we can't embrace the forgiveness of God. It just means that we have consequences. Consequences are still active, but the forgiveness is still beautiful. And it's because of this that we must embrace the freedom of forgiveness. We must embrace the freedom of forgiveness. Now, when I was structuring this message, I really wanted to use the term self-forgiveness here. I mean, I had it down. I, I fought with that term, though, and I started, I, I was trying to figure out a w- better way to word it. I ended up sending my slides to Pastor Bill. He sent them back to me and gave me six hours more of work, which, <laughs> thank you for that. Um, but I came to the to the understanding and to the realization after reading through this and studying this that self-forgiveness isn't a thing. We can't forgive ourselves. In fact, insinuating that we can forgive ourselves is putting ourselves in a position of God in our lives to offer ourselves a gift that only he can give. And you know what? There's a, there's a movement that's actually moving through, <laughs> moving through our society today that's like, I just, I don't know if I can forgive myself for what I've done. Folks, it couldn't be more wrong with that. You see, when God offers forgiveness, it is ours. It's not up to us whether we receive it or not. When we've repented, God gives us forgiveness. End of discussion. And when we miss that, we get stuck in a cycle of living underneath that sin and the weight and the pressure of that sin and we don't move forward and we can't be, moved, we can't be used by God. 
How can we be used by God if we're stuck in this cycle of not accepting his forgiveness? We must embrace the freedom of forgiveness. And we see that in verses 20 through 23. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the child will be gracious to me, whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Right about now, after I read that portion of scripture, again, if you stop here, I'm thinking, David's a looney tune. Man, this guy, what in the world did I just read? This guy spent seven days on the floor, not eating. His, his people can't even get him up to, you know, take care of himself because he knows the judgment that's coming. He understands that consequences are absolutely necessary sometimes. He understands that he's forgiven, but he's begging God to release him of the consequences. And when he receives those consequences, what does he do? He gets up, he washes himself, gets a change of clothes, goes and worships the Lord, and nourishes his body. And at face value, it does look like he's a looney tune right here. Right? It looks like he does, he's, he's out of his mind. Like this is just a different way of grieving. Like he's not dealing with it right now. But the reality is, is he's just embraced the freedom of forgiveness. He understands the consequences are over and he's embracing the forgiveness that God has given him and he's moving forward. We see if we continue to use our cross-references that Psalm chapter number 32 is attached to this as well. This is another Psalm that David wrote. And we see that he is understanding forgiveness. It's up on the screen now. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Are you encouraged yet? See, when I read this, I was, I was like, what is there to be encouraged about in this? What is there we find hope in? How do we find hope in this passage? What do we do with this? I mean, we take a king who abused his power to get whatever he wanted from a woman who was married. He then used his power to kill off one of the most dignified soldiers we've ever seen. He used his power to cover it up. And yes... He repented, and yes, he was forgiven, but good grief. The baby, an innocent baby, has to die, and when that's done, David can wash his hands and get back to life? Well, where's the hope in that? And you see, 
these are the questions that are going to come up in your, in your reading and in your studying of the Scripture. And when they do, you need to go find the answers. Because the answer is right around the corner here. It's right around the corner. Too often we stop reading and we don't get to the answers. We're not going to do that today. We're going to make sure we get to the answers and we're going to hit the last stop of our journey, which is restoration, repairing the relationship and moving forward. Let's go ahead and read verses 24 through 25. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. What we see here is that when forgiveness is embraced and the believer moves forward, God will reconcile. He will restore. But notice here that the believer must move forward. He has to embrace the freedom of forgiveness, and he has to move forward. And when they do that, we see a beautiful picture of restoration. Now, some of you are sitting here wondering, what in the world does an intimate night and the birth of a child have to do with restoration? Well, if you don't know who Solomon is yet, you're about to learn, because Solomon was a very celebrated birth in the Bible, and we're going to go over why. And the reason why is, you see, Solomon's birth was actually a fulfillment of a promise from God to David. It was the fulfillment of a promise that God made not only to David, but to all of us, that eventually his son would be born. We're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter number 7 on the screen, and we're going to go over the second point in this that God fulfills and keeps his promise. But first, we've got to understand what that promise actually is. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. See, God's promising David here many years before all of this took place. He's promising him that his throne and his kingdom will be established forever. Forever. And Solomon's birth was just that. His birth of Solomon was the continuation of a promise was a completion of a promise. It was a picture of restoration. It was God saying to David, I understand you have sinned. You've sinned grievously against me, but I forgive you. We're moving on. We're restoring the relationship because I have a work to do through your line. And we see generation after generation after generation takes place until eventually we land at a generation in the small, small town of Bethlehem in a manger in the birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus Christ who came to save the world and establish his kingdom forever. Forever. And on that baby's birth certificate, 
in the record books, in his lineage, is the birth of Solomon. See, David moved forward. David grasped the freedom of forgiveness. He moved forward. God restored. And we see it lead to the birth of Christ. So what do we take away from all this? Well, in relation to the study we've been doing, can you all see how if you don't read enough of the big picture, you're going to miss the big point? If we don't read backwards and understand the context of what's going on before, if we don't read far enough forwards, if we don't use our cross-references, we miss the big point. And then applicationally, I just want to talk to four people groups here. The first people group I want to talk to is the believer who's living in sin. Believer who's living in sin. Some of you are towing the line right now, and you know what it's in. You're midway down a fall, or maybe at the beginning of the fall, or maybe at the end of the fall, but nonetheless, you're falling. And it's time to embrace repentance. It's time to ask for forgiveness. It's time to embrace the the forgiveness of God so we we can move into a restored relationship with him and be used by him. Because consequences aren't going away, but you got a life to live and God has a plan that he wants to use you for. The second people group that I want to talk to are the believer the believers who are living, they've, they've, they've experienced sin, they've gone through sin, they've repented, but they're under the weight of not being able to forgive themselves. See, a lot of times this is coupled with anxiety and depression and just a weight that you can't seem to get out from underneath. It's coupled with just a powerful, just crippling effect And I would encourage you, believer, that God's forgiven you. If you've repented, God has forgiven you. And it's time to move forward. It's time to move forward, and it's time to be used by God. The third people group that I want to talk to is the people group here that you're living in a relationship that is broken with someone else in some way, shape, or form. And you may be the offender, you may be the offended. But I need to hit on something here because while restoration does not always happen for us on earth between our relationships, in fact, there are some sins that we can't restore a relationship afterwards, forgiveness is a command. If we go back and look at the points, forgiveness is a command that's modeled by God. We don't have a choice in this. You must forgive. And if you're the offender, you need to realize that God And his forgiveness is what matters. You see, David said in the Psalms that I have sinned against you and you only, O God. We must embrace God's forgiveness. The final person that I want to talk to or people group are the people here who don't know God, who haven't experienced his forgiveness, who haven't repented, who haven't entered into a restored relationship with him, Earlier in the message, I said that not all sin leads to restoration with God, but to have restoration with God, every, that, that has to start with sin. Well, let me tell you, if you don't land in restoration with God after your sin, you're on a one-way ticket to hell. And we don't 
go over that enough because we don't want to offend people. But the reality is, is that Almighty God is begging you to enter into a relationship with him. And he's standing by and waiting to offer you that forgiveness. All you have to do is claim it. All you have to do is repent, ask for his forgiveness, and enter into a relationship with him and move forward into a restored relationship with the Almighty God. Are you here feeling the weight of the world and saying, what am I here for? Why am I doing this? There's got to be something bigger to life than what I'm going through today. You're right. There is. And all the answers are right here in this book. But it starts with repentance. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for your forgiveness and how immediate it is. We thank you for restoration. Lord, I know that there are people here that are wrestling with your Holy Spirit right now. I pray that the Holy Spirit would win. I pray that that fight would not be over when they leave here today if they have not gotten right with you, but Lord, that they would continue to wrestle with the Holy Spirit until the Holy Spirit wins out. Lord, we turn them over to you and we ask for your work in their lives. We thank you again for this time. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.